0: we all have familiars right all of us yes does everyone have a pet mm-hmm. I do. cat have you ever been afraid of your pet what do you have for a pet?
1: i have two cats a <coughs> cat household um marin is terrifying she's my big fat one and she doesn't like anything or anyone and she is currently sitting on my bed staring at me so that's a little irksome but we're talking about it right now <laughs> they're cute i think i try to hug them too much so nobody likes me everybody likes jimmy jimmy is like the cat daddy of the of the households even though i clean up the poop so i'm a little bitter but it's totally fine fine.
2: yeah yeah my pets are well i mean i would say spike is my 17 year old main coon cat i have feared for my life a few times with spike i've also you know seen cat's eye and, uh, yeah, I, I would say that I fear pets. My dogs have all always been very
0: small. You get small pets so you can overpower them.
3: Trent, uh, Calvin ever threaten you? No, I've never um, ever found my 10-pound Pomeranian Mogwai mix to be <laughs> threatening. I think you, Dave, have the scary pet in this bunch. You have a giant Ruttweiler who is young and has a lot of strength and vigor. <laughs> I've would be. i been afraid. I'll tell you what, I've been afraid of your pet a number of times.
2: I disagree. I oh, think really? D- Dave's way. Dave's dog is like cat. Dave's dog just has too much love to give, mm-hmm. and not everybody wants it. That's
3: right. You know, people always, my stepbrother had a big Rottweiler at one point is many years ago. And the thing about the big, powerful dogs is that people are always like, Oh, but he's a big teddy bear, he's the sweetest thing, and, you know, but all it takes, the thing is, yeah, I'm sure the dog is a big teddy bear, very harmless, very nice, very sweet, very friendly, not a mean bone in the body, but all it takes is one thing. It's not like an everyday scare, sure, the dog's not vicious or anything, one day, one minute, one second is all it takes, and you are over. (laughs) Oh, Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm the human Trentipede, here with Coven Cut and Grave. Hey guys, how's it going?
1: oh Great.
3: Hello. This week, this is where my kitty lays. No more he screams and hollers. He lived for five and twenty days. He cost me fifty dollars. We're talking pets. Cat, <laughs> what did you bring to the table for pets this week?
1: I brought... I think the first thing that pops into my mind when I think of spooky pets is Pet Cemetery, the OG, the 1989 version from Mary Lambert. Um, obviously, it's a Stephen King story. I don't know if it was a short story or a, a full one. I feel like it was probably a shorty.
2: Um, full novel. No, it was a full novel. novel. Kind of a big deal. Did you guys read it?
1: Well, I didn't read it.
2: Yeah. I read it when I was like ten same
1: well 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 great um (laughs) (laughs) so it's a it's about this doctor dr lewis creed who moves his family to maine of course because that's where all spooky stories take place um and they meet a local man named jed who i think is a national treasure and then after the death of their cat spoiler alert the friendly local tells them to bury it in the old pet cemetery but the result is something Sinister. Bump, bump, bump. Sometimes <laughs> dead is better.
2: That
1: <laughs> I remember thinking this movie was a little bit more scary the first time I watched it. And then this time I was just kind of, I don't want, I don't want to say annoyed. Like I, I, I feel like I was kind of annoyed by the, the guy that played Lewis. He is a very bad crier. Like he's not a good pretend to be sad guy. So that kind of threw me a little bit. But it's definitely got its spooky points still. Um, I think towards the end, it gets, you know, a little spookier. There's some graphic uh, ankle cutting that I still had to look away from on the screen. But I think it's interesting. Like, it's an interesting take on, you know, how people kind of deal with death or tragedy. You know, some people just can't let it go, you know. So I, I thought it was I thought it was a fun pet filled film.
0: I, I if you want to be scared by Pet Cemetery, uh the the best way to do it is to watch the remake and then watch this one because I think this one's way scarier than the remake. You know, they go back to like the origins of the Pet Cemetery into this like weird like gothic pilgrim stuff all the way to present and i thought the pascal was also very scary in this one uh the the college student that haunts him throughout and the thing i like the best about pet cemetery uh the original is that it's very stephen king i feel like it's it's almost like from like horror graphic novels or comic books um and I i thought that this one definitely had that um without spoiling too much you know, Trent and I talked about how comic book, like the final scene is with the kiss and and Judd is very good in this one. A lot of people have problems with his main accent, but I don't think a lot of people realize that the main accent is not really one thing. It, it kind of varies from county to county. And I, I think it was believable. Um, I do agree that, uh, Lewis was kind of the, the rest of the actors in this besides for, uh, Herman Munster were kind of like soap opera actors or like some Cinemax late night kind of stuff.
1: Star Trek.
0: Yeah. But, uh, I, I like this one way better than the remake. I think it does justice to the book. I don't know. I, 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 this is one of my favorite Stephen King, uh, adaptations I think the stuff that's come after this has not been as true to Stephen King's style.
3: Uh, I enjoyed this one. I hadn't seen it for quite a while. Uh, I read this book when I was in like seventh grade or something. So, I, you know, as far as uh, whether it's faithful or not, or, or the the level of, uh, of quality of adaptation, I think this is one of my favorite Stephen King stories, generally, for sure. I, I love the story so much that, Any adaptation, to me, is cool. And I think that, to me, this is more interesting than good, necessarily. I think there are some great things about it. I thought uh, Fred Gwynn's main accent was great. I mean, as somebody who's been watching bad main accents in movies my whole (laughs) life, I thought Fred Gwynn was really good. And I think that it's a fun... If you like the story and you like Stephen King, I think that it's a fun watch. I did love the like 50s horror comic feel. And this whole setup from the start is very similar to things like Hot Fuzz, the big city MD hospital doctor retires to a small country town. (laughs) He's gonna spend more time with his family. He's got a young, he's got young kids. Uh, He's going to be the school doctor on a small college campus and get away from the rat race. Lo and behold, the patient of his life and perhaps death. Kevin, what do you think of this one?
2: This is one of my favorite Stephen King books for sure. I read it when I was pretty young and then reread it later on in life. It's so terrifying. I'll disagree with Dave a little bit. Neither the eighty nine version or the two thousand and nineteen version are are totally faithful to the book. In fact, they leave out some pretty key characters uh, and one character it 's kind of a big deal, kind of a big part of exactly what this pet cemetery is. But being from Maine, we all worship Stephen King. I worship Stephen King. I love finding anything King related, and I love finding anything Maine related. You know, most people in this country think we're part of Canada. So I love seeing anything (laughs) that puts us on the map. He pulls a total Hitchcock in this, and he cameos as the minister, which is, I love seeing Stephen King pop into any of his movies. And one thing that I found, there's a documentary that's free on Tubi called Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery, which is a fantastic hour-long watch, and a lot of the shit I'm going to ramble on today about I got from this. So we on this show, we talk a lot about useless male figures in horror movies, and how they do nothing. Well, Pet Cemetery, I think, is a really good example of where Lewis does too fucking much, and maybe <laughs> he should have done nothing. The movie itself I have a lot of problems with. I think the acting is atrocious other than Fred Gwynn and Miko Hughes because a two-and-a-half-year-old is the best actor in this movie. This is true. The soil
3: of a man's heart is Lewis,
2: uh, in all this. Good job, bud. That's, that's, that's you, good. Man. Yeah, that was very really good. Man
3: grows what he can, he tends to it. Because what you buy is what you own. And what you own always comes home to you. I've been doing that
2: oh, for about my. a week, uh, I can't stop, sorry, but you Very know, well executed. I was waiting
1: for the Trent main accent, I was so happy. That's
2: your cat now.
3: <laughs> Fitch cat don't tend to wander?
0: Um,
2: you got that real
0: down east old guy main accent, I can do like the like the mullet, like the guy who like had a fucked up childhood. That guy,
3: I can do that guy. Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that uh, the, the gobbledygook about the men's hearts and the secrets and women are supposed to keep the secrets, oh, I don't know, all about that stuff. <laughs> I thought that the real overriding but more subtle theme of this, which is interesting to me, was one of faith. Uh, I don't think you usually think of like horror movies in general And probably not this one right on the surface as a story about faith, but it seemed to me that a big part of this was the fact that the no nonsense doctor who doesn't believe in the afterlife, who doesn't believe in heaven, who is very matter of fact and clinical about matters of death, which is a big part of the movie, was explaining to their daughter Ellie when the the cat goes missing, he's the one who cannot accept death he's the one who becomes obsessed and and goes to such great lengths to stave off death because he can't deal with it and it seems to me that part of his outlook informs the fact that he can't deal with it because he doesn't have faith he doesn't believe that there's anything more than the life on a table in an office he doesn't believe in anything beyond the clinical and so when it comes time for him to deal with human loss and and death and dying he just freaks out and I feel like it's kind of a a, a message there about believing in something beyond what you can see and feel and believing that a person might be something more than an insect or an animal that dies and and, and then that's it and and if you reject any notion of that then I think it could lead you to some pretty dark places
0: I would like to have seen um... The the moments that I was talking about, where they kind of talk through history, uh, of the repercussions of burying animals in this pet cemetery and how it always goes wrong. I wish there was more pet stuff. I would love like a a prequel to this that was all gothic with, you know, like just dogs and cats going insane. <laughs> I feel like um, a lot of the pet movies, uh, both of them we're talking about this week, deal with. A transformation of character uh, in the pet so like you know we've spent a thousand years weaning domestic animals off their instincts and then uh, you know like the Stockholm Syndrome (laughs) dynamic that you have with a pet Mm -hmm. underlying is that they have these instincts to hunt and to kill and to survive and that our fears kind of are that these are going to emerge to the surface you know there's always that potential i have the main mullet double wide trailer park accent because those are my my roots mm. and and you know you guys and other people in my life have been spending years domesticating me but really when it comes down <laughs> to it that's where it lies it's, is an, ongoing, that it's an ongoing trailer trash like i was the kid with <laughs> spaghettios all over his face even if I hadn't eaten SpaghettiOs in a week or a fudgesicle, it was all over my face mm. all the time. Just came out of my pores. Dave
2: was born like he came out of the pet cemetery. Oh <laughs> yes. <laughs> was it Timmy? Are you? You're Timmy Baderman. Ooh. <laughs> I want to talk about the acting. You have Dale Midkiff who played Lewis. He was terrible. Mm. And Allison watched this with me. So the scene where Victor Pascal first shows up and asks Lewis to come with him and Lewis gets out of bed and he's wearing his scrubs. Allison was like, who the fuck comes back from the hospital and goes to bed in their scrubs? Like, wouldn't you put your pajamas on or something? So as I'm researching the yeah, movie, that wouldn't
0: fly during coronavirus for sure. Yeah.
2: As I'm as I'm looking up the movie, I find out that in the book he's supposed to just be in jockey shorts. Well, the people on set thought he looked too hot as in attractive, while they were trying to film this scene. So they just grabbed whatever they had close by, and that was his scrubs.
3: That's one of your great facts so far, Kevin. (laughs) Is it? (laughs) I just want to say, yeah, that that Lewis was too hot, and they had to put some more clothes on him.
1: He he could have been daddy of the week, but not with those scrubs.
2: (laughs) I think Judd is daddy of the week for me. Miko Hughes is, is the kid that played Gage Creed. This kid was two and a half years old. He is the best actor in the film by far. Ellie, the daughter, played by twins, Blaze Birdall and her sister, Bo. Sorry to both of you. You were fucking irritating and terrible. You almost <laughs> ruined the entire fucking movie. You're lovely oh. in the documentary. You look like you grew up well and adjusted. And it's common for child actors to be played by twins. So the studio was pushing Mary Lambert and King who had a hand in this movie, a big hand, to cast twins. And when Miko Hughes came in, they said, look, this kid is way too good. So a lot of the reasoning for twins is you have child labor laws. So you can't work a kid on a movie shoot for 16 hours straight. So they want one twin for eight hours, the other twin for the other eight. He is also the kid from Kindergarten Cop that gave us the legendary line, boys have a penis and girls have a vagina. Wow. And then he also plays the kid in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So in this weird universe moment, Heather Langenkamp, Nancy, who was also in New Nightmare, plays his mom. Well, the guy doing effects on Pet Cemetery was her boyfriend at the time. So she actually flew to Maine to hang out with him. He proposed in Maine. And then he kept calling her to get advice on how to gain the trust of this little kid Miko Hughes. And then all these years later, they come together and work on New Nightmare. And he's phenomenal in that as w- as well. By the way,
3: what was so annoying about Ellie, who's like hardly in this, and then they just send her off to the grandparents' house so they don't have to her do anything with the character? Her whining was pretty annoying. Her I whining I
2: it's like you know, not my tell god to get his own cat. Oh. It, it was just not. I, I mean,
0: I, I would want to tell her that her cat was dead (laughs) oh my god like if you want something ask me for it i'll give it to you but you don't need to be like
1: i want a beach ball
0: (laughs) like don't do that it's not going to get me to respond
1: she was trying to save the day she was the one getting all the spooky dreams she was coming in hot you guys are just shutting her down i didn't think she was that bad
2: i never noticed this but there was a big the shining vibe in this movie where I think King and, and it's been it's been a few years since I read the book, but I'll have to go back. I think King was hinting at this family that multiple members of it had The Shining.
3: Oh, mm, interesting. Mm. <laughs> well, that's true because right, they're getting uh, messages from beyond.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But mm-hmm. I, I think that okay, that's a good point uh, actually, and that to me that's something that Stephen King does a lot of that I don't love about his work I'm a huge fan read his books all growing up love me some Stephen King but that is a problem that I have with a lot of his stories he sets up all this great human drama and all these great themes and he has all this really cool horror type stuff going on but at the end of the day so often it just comes down to this inexplicable random often this call, this is called like ghost in the machine, just some totally unexplainable supernatural thing gets him out of any question. Like, why does this happen? Why does that happen? Why are they suddenly speaking to a dead guy? Why are the woods talking? Like there's just so (laughs) there it all, it just comes down to like, eh, I don't know. Scary. You know, there's no, there's nothing else to it.
2: I disagree. I, I think he has spent his, his career forming the Stephen King universe, And that if you were to to take an entire wall of your house and start to connect the dots, you would find that he actually is constantly building on this universe and referencing himself. And I think the problem when you have such a body of work And I also think a problem with having him write the screenplay for this is it's hard to be objective. You have so much in your head that you understand that sometimes it can be hard to convey that to the audience. And as King goes on and on and is still writing novels, you can get further and further away from a casual reader enjoying something. You know, it's almost to the point where you have to be a hardcore investigative Stephen King reader to maybe start to understand some of his works. And I I appreciate that. I would
0: say like two thousand. Like 17, it's just a guess, but there was kind of a resurgence of Stephen King stuff. But I felt like the 80s, the early 80s, and even late 70s was a heyday for his cinematic work. And not that he has a, a ton of you know input in every movie, but that was like the heyday. And at this point when Pet Cemetery came out, he had kind of not really been owning... The horror cinema for a little while. This was kind of a return to form. You know, it it reminded me a little bit of if it was all tightened up, it could have been a creep show uh, episode.
3: Yeah, that's actually, they talk about that in the documentary that Kevin referenced, um, Unearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery on Tubi. They talk about the fact that this movie almost didn't get made because the studios felt that Mary Lambert had shopped it to at least one studio before the one that made it, and they were saying that, ah, Stephen King movies are passe, Stephen King is over, nobody wants more Stephen King, there's already been a ton of these adaptations, some have been good, some have been bad, but they felt like the time had passed, broadly, and then there was a writer's strike, so, in, in the, was mid to late 80s in Hollywood, so, then suddenly they were looking for stuff that was already written, that you already had a screenplay, you already had a script prepared, and they could just bang it out and make this movie. So that's where Mary Lambert got her chance to have this made.
2: Yeah, and it's it's crazy. King, this was supposed to be George Romero. King actually sold the rights okay. to this to George Romero for a whopping $10,000. And I think we talked about in the in the Carrie episode, didn't he sell the rights to that for like 2500 bucks or something? So... But the reason that he was, he was sort of underselling the rights is he had a lot of say. So he had final director say. So he's the one that picked Mary Lambert. He also uh, had a stipulation in the rights selling that said this 100% had to be filmed in Maine, which is super dope. So this mm-hmm. whole thing was filmed in Sedgwick, Ellsworth, and Mount Desert Island. And I wish I knew that because I totally would have made us take – a speak all evil company outing trip to Mount Desert Island because an abandoned rock quarry still exists where they built the pet cemetery scene, <gasps> and I fucking would have loved that. In fact, that's where we should go camping.
3: I'd love to talk about Maximum Overdrive someday on the show that he actually directed and later yeah. disowned. Um, but <laughs> some of the some of the source material, though, even is is just it stretches believability a little bit. Things like we were talking about they're trying to tell Ellie what happened with a cat and this idea of dealing with death with your kids and explaining death to them. There's this whole tension between the parents, between Lewis and his wife about how they're going to approach this with their kids and beyond that there's a tension in what they each believe about death and the afterlife and it's like they've never talked about this before. I mean, they're married with two kids. You'd think that at some point she would have found out that lewis doesn't believe in life after death like that she just discovers that because a cat dies they never in all their dating and courtship and marriage they never discussed bigger ideas that they have about life and death also the zelda thing which i had totally Mm -hmm. forgotten about zelda Mm -hmm. when i saw the i saw the remake of this movie last year i thought that they just made up zelda for the remake i was like why is this this wasn't in the book (laughs) well it was in the book i just forgot about it i didn't remember but another thing, she tells Lewis the whole Zelda story. Wouldn't you think they would have talked about that at some point? You think at some point, that's what I the, thought. he would have found out like, oh, you had a sister who died of a spinal meningitis and you've carried oh guilt your whole no. life because it was such a traumatic experience. That's oh, never come up no. this whole marriage? What? That's not, that's not pillow talk.
2: She's not <laughs> dropping the, She's not dropping the whole thing on him. She's coming clean about Zelda's death. And this, is, right. th- this part of the story sure. is actually okay, making both that. of your points that this entire movie is about avoiding death. And clearly, Rachel, the, the wife, has avoided death because of this issue with her sister, Zelda. Which, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that spinal meningitis turns you into an absolute fucking blizzard monster. <laughs> but i don't know how you forgot that trent that (laughs) fucked me up when i was a kid and i first saw this movie that terrified me and fun fact the young rachel played by elizabeth Urenick, a Waynefleet grad was really good friends with one of my best friends and i used to party with her
3: ooh get stephen king on the show bro she would show up at our
2: (laughs) at our apartment that we shared uh with a royalty check and be like, yo, Pet Summitary was just shown on CBS last week, so I got like $2.63. Oh. Let's party. <laughs> wow.
0: I was a little bit betrayed by finding out that Zelda was played by a man. Mm-hmm. Because oh. it was kind of like when I was, you know, I remember when the Love Shack, the B 52's Lo- Love Shack videos, I was really attracted to RuPaul, who later I found out was a man. It was a similar dynamic with me and Zelda. I had been attracted to Zelda for,
2: for years, um, Dream Girl, and Sexuality then uh, I find out spectrum. that it's played, she's played by a man. Hold on, i got to add this to the list of things Dave would have sex with.
3: <laughs> no kink shaming on this show. Normalize spinal meningitis traction. Okay? <laughs> you can take anything from this episode.
2: So Dave, the reason that they went with a man is because they felt that a 13-year-old girl couldn't be scary. Uh, what do you have to say about that?
0: Oh, yeah, they can definitely be scary.
2: <laughs> <laughs> did you guys catch the uh, Cujo poster when they're carrying uh, Victor Pascal into the clinic after the accident? They they run him by a poster of Cujo. I didn't
3: notice that.
1: I did have to Google if Cujo was buried in, a, in the pet cemetery because I was like, that makes sense. <laughs> That'd be really
3: cool. And I was like, oh, no, they're just
1: separate. They're just separate
3: things. That's another Stephen King hallmark that... Uh, can get a little, like, he invented the evil inanimate object, you know? Like, mm-hmm. what, if, what if a pencil was just evil? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> master of horror. Ah, not really. <laughs> uh, wait, get this. Hold on, Kevin. Get this. What if the chair was evil? <gasps> master of horror. Oh, my.
2: God. <laughs> uh, the, he, he actually, I think Dave just mentioned that this could have been an episode of Creep Show. Pet Cemetery. Stephen King has acknowledged, was inspired by Monkey's Paw a 1909 book by W.W. Jacobs, and Shudder's new creep show has an episode based on Monkey's Paw, and it's, you can, just by watching that, you can kind of tell, you know, where King got the, got the idea. But the Pet Cemetery is real, and I always wondered about the spelling of Pet Cemetery because obviously it's intentionally spelled wrong as the title of the book. So King was living in Orrington, Maine, on a busy road, his daughter's cat was actually killed by a truck on that road, and the wheels started turning. Well, a neighbor had a pet cemetery behind her house. And in the documentary, she's sitting behind the original sign. That, so they were building this pet cemetery because so many pets were dying on the road. And they asked their friend Johnny, okay, your task as we build the cemetery is go, go get some black spray paint and paint the sign. And Johnny apparently was challenged with spelling and spelled pet cemetery that way so that sign really exists and that's where king got the idea and got the the spelling of it and, and again that's right in maine i love it we should
3: straighten out speaking of the pet cemetery we should straighten out something here because it's pretty important in the horror canon especially in the 80s the pet cemetery itself is not what brings things back there's another cemetery beyond the pet cemetery That is, hold on to your hats, you'll never guess, an ancient Indian burial ground. This is a major thing that runs through a lot of 80s movies. We're gonna be, in a future episode, we're gonna be talking about Toby Hooper, we're gonna talk Poltergeist, but I thought it was interesting that this movie does have the Indian burial ground, but most people think of Poltergeist as having the Indian burial ground when, that is actually what's known as the Mandela Effect. Are you guys familiar with the Mandela Effect? Mm-hmm. Yes. So most people think that Poltergeist had the Native American burial ground, the house was built on, caused all the problems. It was just a regular burial ground. This movie goes the full distance and has the, the local Micmac. it would try to weaves in the Wendigo legend or something.
2: The book does, the movie leaves it out.
3: Okay, so it's it's in the new one. Then I I've watched 3 pet cemetery movies in the past yeah. week,
2: so now they're <laughs> yeah. all starting to blur together a little bit. I'm bummed that they left the Wendigo out. I don't I don't want to get into it. I think we'll save that for for some bonus content. But it definitely explains that this is is not an ancient Indian burial ground. That's actually untrue. And it sort of explains why the tribe left this land and how the Wendigo owns this land. What
3: do you what do you different. mean is what do you mean it's not? It it, it's it, explicitly, not a, it explicitly is. They buried bodies there. I mean, that's what it is.
2: I, I think what you're implying, or may, pe- people maybe infer by what you're saying, that, that the Indian tribe had something to do with the curse. And that's not the case. It's purely the Wendigo. This is the Wendigo's land. And what a Wendigo does is it influences and possesses and takes over, typically... Men, and thus the tribe realized this land is owned by the wendigo We're out
0: by the way, I'd just like to point out the cat gets it twice the dog gets it twice. the kid gets it twice I, I love the the thing I love about the pet cemetery is. You kill him once, and you get to kill him again. <laughs> like, that's probably, like, what I would do is I would just use a pet cemetery to just, like, oh, this time we're going to kill him with a chainsaw. This time we're going to kill him with an ice pick.
2: <laughs> I've always wanted to try a lawnmower. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, we're talking about pets. I decided to go with the ultimate pet movie, albeit uh, non-traditional pets. I chose Gremlins, the 1984 Steven Spielberg blockbuster (laughs) directed by Joe Dante, who we talked about back in the So Bad It's It's Good episode. He directed Piranha, the late 70s. He also had done The Howling by this point. Uh, movie, oh. this Gremlins, written by Chris Columbus, Ooh. so right away you've got an all-star smash cast. Then the actual cast of the film, just an '80s dream, headed up <laughs> by C. Thomas Howell, with no. Phoebe Cates. No, Zach you've Gallagher. You got Corey no. Feldman. It's okay, and if that's steep. not enough, you got Judge Wait. Reinhold. I mean, C. What Thomas Howell's is not in this movie that no. you want from an 80s film. I hear a bunch of noise going on, um, and I, I, I'm going to address the various groans from the crowd here in a second. It's not C. Thomas Howell. It's Gilligan uh. something, Zilligan or whatever. <laughs> but the thing is, if you, if you watch this mid-80s Spielberg, Chris Columbus, Joe Dante movie with Phoebe Cates, Judge Reinhold, Corey Feldman, and others, if you just pretend that that guy is C. Thomas Howell... It just makes it that much better. He looks just like him. You could even pretend he's the guy from American Werewolf in London if you wanted, but I chose C. Thomas Howell. If you think of this movie and you just watch it like I did and you just think, oh man, C. Thomas Howell, this is like his best out of everything. (laughs) It just kind of makes it more enjoyable. So I watched it thinking C. Thomas Howell. I love this movie. It is tremendous. I got way into it. I watched the sequel gremlins 2 the new batch um (laughs) love it can't can't say enough about this movie it's a great pet movie
2: Mm. there's also uh the the cast that you talked about trent in terms of who was behind the scenes there's a lot of roger corman connections here so i don't think it's a coincidence that we get this family friendly horror movie if you will This was one of my favorite movies of all time. I absolutely bought into the gizmo craze. This is also the first scary movie that I ever got my daughter to watch. This was how I started dipping her toes into the pool of horror. Because it starts off like, this is the cutest movie ever. I love all these characters. Hey, it's Christmas time. This is great. (laughs) And then Death and Destruction. Love it. I think the one cast member that you did not just highlight is Hoyt Axton, who plays the dad, the crazy, terrible inventor, Rand Peltzer. He's also the narrator. He's the one that finds Gizmo and, and starts the wheels in motion. And then also the mom, Francis Lee McCain, who plays Lynn Peltzer is unbelievable. She... I, I didn't realize until I started looking into this movie that she was basically all, all of our 80s moms. She was the mom in Gremlins, in Footloose, in Back to the Future, in Stand By Me, and then she made a triumphant return in Scream as Tatum's mom. So, Francis oh, Lee McCain, shoot. Mommy of the Week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this movie scared the shit out of me when I was little. Like, I remember... I had nightmares all the time. I distinctly remember my sister, my older sister, is a bit of a piece of shit, or she was when we were growing up, she's fine now. But I remember we were renting this beach house like for a winter rental on like York Beach and there were bunk beds in it. And it didn't matter if I was on the top or if I was on the bottom. If I was on the top, she would stick her little hand up the side and be like, gremlins! And then grab me. If I was on the bottom, she would like throw things at me and yell gremlins. She terrorized me. But this film is what started the terrorization. Um, it's definitely one of my favorite Christmas movies. I always watch it at Christmas time because I like to feel uh, the, the spirit of Christmas in my heart. And. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, lo- I think it holds up. It absolutely holds up. I love I think my favorite the- my favorite scene is like the bar scene like when they're all in there and they're like breakdancing and the it, the puppets just look so weird when they're like walking on their own. Like there's no CGI in this movie you know. I think it holds up and I love it. And I would watch it a thousand times. It was a fun week for me. I'm glad I got to watch Gremlins.
0: I love Gremlins too. Um, the I would argue that it it, you said it's not a traditional pet movie but i think it's an allegory for traditional pets because i feel like the mogwai is a puppy and i feel like the gremlins are a cat
1: that makes sense because
0: (laughs) they definitely have the personality of a cat the mischievous uh like fucking with you kind of vibe yeah gremlins is great i like i like how violent it is i like that it's the loophole uh Two terrifying children with like oh it's a kids movie let's watch this and then it's completely terrorizing their brains the whole time uh, i don't know if anyone else noticed but if you're a breaking bad fan the deputy in this is mike from breaking so bad and like yeah he's like he's got he, some hair he looks like he might be in his 20s and he's got some hair and I, I i liked mike was one of my favorite characters on breaking bad so like i just started cheering when i realized (laughs) that he was the the deputy sheriff in this movie
2: yeah they spared they spared nothing with the casting on this dick miller's in it you know r.i.p he passed away last year as murray Futterman. you know he was in piranha the howling terminator chopping mall night of the creeps uh this week is definitely a tale of two child actors You have Miko Hughes, who played Gage Creed in Pet Sematary, who grew up to be well-adjusted, very (laughs) Mm multi-talented. And then you have Corey Feldman, who definitely spent a lot of years being a massive fuck-up, although he was in one of the best Jason movies. So there you go. (laughs) Um, And Hoyt Axton, who I talked about, he actually wasn't even an actor. He improvised most of his lines. What hoyd Daxon is known for is being a massive songwriter. And he also passed away in, in 99. But he wrote Joy to the World that Three Dog Night made famous. He wrote The Pusher that Steppenwolf made famous in the movie Easy Rider. He has a ton of songs to his... I mean, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. The dad from Gremlins wrote that. What? I was, I was blown away.
1: That's funny.
2: And, and I never knew that Howie Mandel did the voice of Gizmo until we watched it this week and i looked it up
3: (laughs) well i would take dave's allegory one step further now that i think about it the mogwai if the mogwai is the puppy you didn't follow the rules you didn't take good stewardship of the puppy and the gremlin is ill-behaved crazy dog you can't have people over for dinner with a goddamn dog in there doing stuff tearing stuff up Taking people's food, bite might bite someone. Getting snappy, can't have the kids around. That that would be my own. Oh, by the way, speaking of pets, this is not a PETA-friendly movie. I don't think that PETA would approve of much that goes on in this movie. There's a lot of bad behavior around pets from the cavalier way that the Mogwai is bought right mm-hmm. away. First thing, imperialist capitalism strikes, baby. <laughs> coming in a big fat rich American throwing his money around and not taking any responsibility for what he did and ruining uh something from another culture which later on in the next movie is destroyed altogether so I think there's a lot of allegory and commentary going on
2: Joe Dante birthed generations of horror fans By tricking us into thinking that this was a family movie, which the studio definitely helped him do by making gizmo, toys, and dolls, Mm -hmm. we all need to thank Joe Dante because this (sighs) movie did scare the shit out of me. And I think you have two camps. I think there are people that watched this movie when they were young and they got scared and now now they have a serious aversion to horror. And then you have us who probably watched this movie, got super scared when we were little and went, huh wonder what else is out there <laughs> So I need to thank Joe Dante for introducing me to the world of horror and the the fucked up thing about Gremlins, first of all, Chris Columbus writing it is insane to me because that dude wrote goonies. he's now a major director doing like Harry Potter films. This is the dude that did home alone. So that is that is is crazy to me. Um, but his first script was actually darker. There were more deaths. There were heads being thrown downstairs, there was a family dog being consumed, and there was a scene that they wouldn't shoot, which I wish they had, where the gremlins decide to hit up a McDonald's and eat people instead of Big Macs.
0: <laughs> this birthed a lot of horror fans, but it also birthed a lot of copycat movies. Uh, the, the main one that comes to mind is like Critters. Yes. But it almost started a genre based on crazy little creatures that not just murder, but it's just mischief and torment. And they're almost like drunk college kids in the old port, just like trying to
3: start fights. We have been, some of us have been watching In Search of Darkness, the 80s horror. It's not really a documentary, but it's kind of a, a look at 80s horror that's on shutter right now. And I totally forgot about the movie Ghoulies. Remember Ghoulies? Yes. I had time. I was so busy watching all these. There's so many movies associated with this week that I didn't have time to watch Ghoulies, but I am going to because I'm pretty sure I saw it. And that was like the ultimate Gremlins budget
2: bin knockoff. Like,
3: yeah, Gremlins. Uh, how about Ghoulies? I don't know. i come <laughs> out of the toilet.
2: Whatever. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, how lucky we we really need to remember we were in 1984 because Gremlins came out the same day as Ghostbusters.
1: oh,
2: And Ghostbusters is actually the first movie that I ever saw in a movie theater. I remember driving into the main mall theater's parking lot when it still existed and being so excited. I felt like I was in New York City going to like a Broadway play because I was seeing my (laughs) first movie on the big screen. It was Ghostbusters. It wasn't Gremlins. But, I mean, to have those two gems come out on the same day is incredible. And they both obviously went gangbusters at the box office. This was a massive hit. You can look up, you know, the fact that they made this movie for $11 million. It made over $200 million at the box Crazy. office. Crazy. But this was the height of home video. And Gremlins made hundreds of millions of dollars on VHS. I don't know if Laserdisc was a thing then. Whatever. Who framed Roger Rabbit. But this this is a massive massive hit and i'll throw out the obvious fact this movie as well as temple of doom are purely responsible for the pg-13 rating so yes. this movie when it came out was rated pg mm-hmm. it was marketed as look at gizmo he's so cute <laughs> tons of parents brought toys four, look at all the four, toys. You yeah all of it four five six-year-olds into this movie and I just can't... I still remember the first time I saw this movie and the the science teacher was murdered. Mm-hmm. And I was horrified. So you had parents walking out of the theater in droves. The studios were pissed. And Steven Spielberg himself is the one that recommended Let's Go With the PG-13. And Red Dawn was actually the first movie ever officially released with a PG-13 rating.
1: Mm. I think we need to talk about the... Uh Absolutely child-scarring Christmas story that Kate tells about her dad. Yeah. Like <laughs> that was
2: BB Kate's,
1: Oh my god! It was like when I heard that. That also scarred me. I was just like, "Wait, he died? Like this isn't a Christmas movie at all." But it's a good. But it's a good Christmas movie.
0: Yeah, you have to be careful of this one because you want to show it to kids, but it definitely does the spoiler of Santa is not real.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, good call. That. Good call. I, I actually, wow, I didn't even realize I was doing that when I watched this with Nora. She definitely <gasps> still believe in Santa. Oh, oh shit. Oh, <laughs> Dude, <dummy. laughs> oh no.
3: <laughs> yeah, this was this was controversial for that reason as well because it is a Christmas movie, as you noted, Cat. One of the things that uh, happens in this movie that was controversial around the Christmas theme was the speech that you mentioned, Cat. Phoebe Cates' character teaches Billy about sad Christmas. So that's <laughs> another element. Not only do you have this, this cute gizmo come on and the toys and the stuffed animals telling you to bring the kids, but not only is there hyper-violence and you know pets being blown up in microwaves, but you have <laughs> Billy learning about sad Christmas. He, he's a grown man, but somehow he doesn't know that some people he can't he can't fathom that some people might not like christmas for whatever various reasons and phoebe teaches him all about sad people on christmas which resonated with me uh big time you know especially at the time and still and still now i don't know if i ever told you guys that my dad left my family on christmas eve no and he just never yeah he just never came home from work and we couldn't, his work didn't know what happened to him. We just like freaked out for like a week. We didn't hear from him, much, nothing, no note, no calls. The cops are looking for him. And then it was right after new year, we were like a major cold snap. And we went to have a fire in the fireplace and something like it would, it, it the smoke was blowing back in the house. It was like something in the fireplace. And we thought it was like a dead animal or something like that. I had to have the fire department come, and it was my dad. He was dressed as Santa. He, he had presents. So he snapped you. his neck. He died instantly.
1: You had me for a good <laughs> thirty seconds, and I was like, "Oh my Way god, too Trent! Long. Way too Trent long. is telling. You. <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm finally feeling connected with Trent and these emotions. <laughs> and then you, son of a bitch."
2: The studio, Ann Spielberg, wanted that entire story she told about her dad cut from the movie. Joe Dante had to fall on the sword and basically say fuck you guys, that has to stay in here, and he won. And I think it's great, um, and you know, Trent just mentioned Billy. Zach Galligan, not see Thomas Howell, is how old and still living with his parents? And still acting like a teenager? It's a little weird.
3: I think I'm 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 assuming he's not too far out of high school, and he's got he's got the job at the bank. He's still at home, so he's grown. Yeah. But well, I, I think I, Judge I guess, Reinhold
1: said he was like 20. He's like, I'm the youngest. I'm 22, and I'm VP at the bank. You could be like me. So I feel like he's right. at least yeah, yeah. 22.
0: He's very naive.
1: But, I mean, but maybe he's helping. You know, his dad's not raking in a lot of bills or a lot of money with that you know with all those inventions so maybe <laughs> oh he's just God, there I to can't. help I you know yeah
0: i love that aspect of it the, <sighs> the the inventions that don't work and the whole family's just using the prototypes for the making smokeless breakfast
1: ashtray and... yeah
2: but billy's best friend is an 11 year old Corey feldman's character is in middle school
1: their best friends that
2: was also weird yeah that was also weird i thought
1: well
3: why is he best feldman's
1: with- been saying it for years guys Oh, I'm just saying
2: cancel, not funny.
1: I didn't think it was funny. I'm being serious.
2: (laughs) Hey, we talked about the last week we talked about the music in Jaws. And so I I, I was paying attention this week. Another Spielberg produced flick. I love the music in this one. I think it's perfect. Like it's all it almost reminded me of the soundtrack of Jaws. And but this is a much more appropriate setting. For a film score like this. And it was uh, Jerry Goldsmith that did it. He also did the music for Poltergeist, which is cool.
3: Oh.
2: What about the effects? Let, let's talk effects because obviously this movie had some stop motion. It had a lot of puppeteering. I don't think there was any CG. The the giant scene where all the gremlins are rushing down the street may have oh, been man. CG. So I'm not sure that that, that one... Uh, I remember it when I was younger being like horrified and amazed at this. It it doesn't hold up quite as well now, but what did you guys think in terms of how they pulled off all the effects in this?
3: Loved it. Yeah, I
0: loved, I thought it was great. loved the practical effects. I, yeah. Like Kat said, the bar scene especially is very, very memorable.
3: There's a lot of um homages to uh, to other horror movies. There's a lot of this this is kind of self-referential in some ways. It's definitely Referential of pop culture at the time, there are a lot of little Easter eggs. Anybody notice the Road Warrior poster egg? No. Yeah, he, Billy has the Road Warrior poster in his bedroom. There's also the scene where they're watching Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original Invasion of the yeah. Body Snatchers, the pods. Yeah. While the Gremlin pods are growing, so there's a lot of stuff like that to look for. Almost too much, really, to, to notice it all.
1: Yeah, it's like yeah, that, that, that moment when yeah, when you're like watching that movie, like maybe look to your right and see the pods that are in the room and be like, oh, wait, what's happening here?
2: We haven't even talked about Miss Deagle.
0: Is that the crotchety old one lady? Of
2: my, one, yes. So Polly Holiday plays Miss Deagle. She played Flo from the show Alice, which was wildly popular back in the day. She's actually the woman that coined the phrase, kiss my grits.
1: Oh, I That's love cute. her.
2: And and as I was reading reviews of the film and going through, like, all the way back to from, from 1984 until present day, how, how critics viewed the movie, her character got so much criticism. I love it. She reminded me of the mean old lady from The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. In fact, as I watched the movie, I was like, they must have modeled her after that. Like, she wants to go after the dog. She's a property manager. And so watching it again... You notice the one time they show her real estate company sign, the hours of business are ten thirty to eleven fifteen a.m. Monday through Friday.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that.
1: Same.
0: Trent, you mentioned uh, Ghoulies. The cool thing about Ghoulies, and I even remember like lots of sequels, uh, like Ghoulies Go to College, even is one. But um, oh wow, it's I like know. Gremlins, but there's tons more sexy time i noticed so like when we were like little kids we could throw on ghoulies and be like yeah mom it's like gremlins it's just these little creatures (laughs) these little muppets and meanwhile you know we're inside a sorority house viewing ghoulies be extremely freaky so i I like the i like the spinoffs that this movie made i thought it was really cool that
2: was the first ghoulies the one with the castle
0: Mm, I don't remember.
2: I don't remember any details. I just
3: remember the cover, the the ghoulie coming out of the toilet. is all yeah. I remember. I know I saw it.
0: They, they were they were like just a ruder version of Gremlins.
3: Yeah, right, edgier. That was probably PG thirteen. It was boobs and more blood. Yep. Speaking
1: of boobs, the, we had this is the second week in a row we've had zero boobs. Yeah. We're basically oh, a we're a PG God. podcast now.
2: <laughs> oh my God!
1: <laughs> take that E away!
2: Oh God, we're gonna go. We're gonna go uh, three for three. All right, we're gonna hat trick boobless.
3: <laughs> I appreciated that once the gremlins hatch, the 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 bad gremlins arrive. This movie doesn't try to take off in a bunch of um, plot points, a bunch of contrivances, and convoluted story about a lot of the, a lot of movies like this once the evil gremlins show up, you'd have some stupid story about, like, they'd have some thing they're trying to do or whatever. In this movie, they just show up and they just start wreaking havoc on the town. There's no overarching plot. Nobody's trying to save the world. Nothing, you know, they're not trying to, like, do anything that they wouldn't do. They're just going crazy, running amok, trying to kill everyone. And the only plot is that you got to stop them. And the only way to stop them is just to kill them with no mercy, no hesitation. There's beheadings with microwaves, whatever you have to do, electrocutions, explosions. There's just you have to just stamp them out in a uh, pretty brutal fashion.
2: The kitchen scene with the mother, with Mommy of the Week, Lynn Pelzer, is one of my favorite of all time. When she just goes full rambo on a bunch of gremlins (laughs) and up until that point she has been the sweetest meek kindest mother and to see her absolutely snap and just do you have like an entire final destinations movie worth of creative deaths in three minutes i love it
0: and also like she was not tipped off that they were even like evil They were just in her kitchen like kind of making a mess at that point she didn't know anything about the gremlins she kind of like just happens upon them and goes full rambo mode on them for no reason other than they're just messing with their kitchen and i think that's enough for a mom
3: yeah i was surprised how like she didn't even try to suss out the situation at all she just (laughs) just went ham no questions asked immediately extreme prejudice these
0: things yeah need to
2: die
3: that's what
2: I like. I never realized how meta the sequel was. It's it's super fun to watch, especially if you just watch the first Gremlins. I might watch it too. They definitely make fun of themselves a lot. Yeah. Um, but while we're on the pets episode, I do have to call out Barney the dog in this movie, whose real name is Mushroom, which is oh. a great name for a dog this dog was also Lance Henriksen's dog in the movie Pumpkinhead so nice job Mushroom the dog being in two legendary horror, horror films horror dog
1: he's R.I.P. probably that was so long ago
2: <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> he, <laughs> he <is> dead <laughs> that's true yeah yeah solid point